You can be seated. This is a, a super, super duper wicked awesome day for me to be back with you. I think I was here one other time in 2012 to bring the word. I had just finished going through Ox Track with this crew down here. You probably don't remember me. Most of you probably don't even have any clue who the heck I am, other than maybe if you looked at the website recently, you might have seen a picture of me, a goofy looking picture up there. Um, but I'm Brian, and super pumped to be a part of the, the family of churches that is Seven Mile Road and to be with the crew that's here from Maine. And as Matt said to our team, just to give you a, a, a brief kind of overview of what the heck's going on with us up in Kennebunk, Maine, right? You don't need your passport to cross over into Maine, although it does feel like another country sometimes, depending on what part of Maine you wind up in. But we're pretty safe, right? We're, we're at the far south point of Maine. There's some semi-normal people up there, so, uh, so I think we're all right. Uh, it, you got me, though. So, um, There was a team of people, Mark and Becky, Jonathan and Sarah, who are sitting right there, and they would love to talk to you about how things have come about the last few years. But um, they began to well up with a sense of, um, of love for the people of the Kennebunks, which is Kennebunk, Kennebunk Port, and Arundel, which make up a little, a, a little bit around 25,000 people-ish. Um, and these people had grown a heart for their neighbors, and there was a sense that there has not been a church planted amongst these people in a wicked long time, north of 20, 25 years, or any effort of a new work of God. And many, many people have been moving. Younger families have been moving up into the Kennebunks area to raise families. They see it as a, as a wonderful place to raise kids. Kennebunkport itself is actually, uh, in all of the United States, is the number two um, Christmas town. There's a big deal that just happens around Christmas time. They call it the prelude. Thousands of people show up for this thing. Our downtown, it's a two-week extravaganza of events. And so it's almost like this little fairy tale area in some ways. They, they really emphasize holidays. There's a lot of traditions up there, well-to-do people. There's a, lo- a big emphasis on the common good up there and maintaining and preserving the beauty of the area and, and the wonderful reputation it has for being a great school system, being a great place to raise your family. And so what Jesus has been doing in bringing my wife Danielle and I and our family up to Kennebunkport a year and a half ago, um, and then merging with Mark and Becky and Jonathan and Sarah and the crew that's been up there meeting as a gospel community now for just about two years, um, Jesus has married us into relationship together where we have said to one another, yes, we are covenanting together to grow together because we are very, very different. When you put the three of us, the three of our families in a room, there's a lot of difference, and there's a lot of difference in gifting and personality traits and wiring and, and how things might be done in specific instances. But there's a, a, a rugged commitment to one another as we look to Jesus because we realize that Jesus is going to be the glue that keeps this thing together because our little thing that's happening up in the Kennebunks right now could go south really, 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 really quick, right? Because you got me, I'm a control freak by nature, right? And so I like things a certain way. And if things don't start going a certain way or go outside the boundary lines of how I envision going, uh, man, it's easy for me to freak out a little bit or get a little worried or want to jump off the train in some ways. And so I need to be looking to Jesus. And these brothers have been helping me look to Jesus as we're growing together and learning together and being committed together and committed to Jesus and committed to the people that he's called us to love and preach the gospel among. And so that's what's been happening. That's a little bit of our context and team. Um, our whole desire is to see the gospel transform everything up in the Kennebunks area. He's given us a huge love for our neighbors, the people that are there. He's given us favor and inroads into community and, and, and Mark having tons of influence in, in and around the town, haven't been there for a while. 
And so we're making friends, we're loving people, we're having people in our homes around the table, eating meals, meeting people where they're at. We're striving to make Jesus known by living as a gospel flourishing, growing family that wants to make disciples of Jesus and wants to be committed to the common good of our area, that wants to do good in the everyday stuff of life of our area. And so we're committed to doing that with our people. Um, where we're at right now, we've just launched basically our website. You can check it out, kennebunkchurch.com. There's some social media stuff you can track with us on. Um, we are going to be launching our Sunday gathering sometime in 2017. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be nailing that down together with our group as we walk through kind of a vision time on Sunday nights with our gospel community. We're at the point of ready, being ready to multiply a second gospel community somewhere in the neck of Kennebunkport in our area right now. So we're thankful for God, to God for what he's doing with that. Um, and here's how you can be supporting us specifically. If you were to look on our site, I won't go down the, the, the initiatives, but we, we have this thing called the Big Seven. The Big Seven Prayer Initiatives, one of the ways that you can support um, us as a team and our church family up there. If you get a chance to take a peek at it today or in the coming week, just go on the website, look under the prayer blog. There's a Big Seven Prayer Initiative. And that's one way that you can partner with us. You don't realize, but you guys are already supporting us as a family. Um, we're in this together. You guys have, have loved us, whether you know it or not. You might, be, you might not even recognize that you have been loving us into existence in a lot of ways and supporting us and working behind the scenes. Because this church is so ferociously committed to seeing disciples made and, plant, and churches planted in and around Boston and beyond, and so you've been committed to helping us, and we're thankful for that. But you can be praying for us as well, specifically check out those big seven prayer initiatives, or come talk to me or Mark or Becky or Sarah or Jonathan or Danielle. And we'd love to spend some time having some conversation with you. All right. That's all that. We need to jump into Psalm. I'm preaching from Psalm 130, our call to worship text. You've been ripping through periodically here the Psalms of Ascent, particularly the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, the Psalms are beautiful because, um, as you've probably been in, in experiencing in some ways, uh, the Psalms are, are beautiful in helping us um, give us a unique and healthy way to deal with our emotions and feelings. Now, right away, like I mentioned the word emotions and feelings, and if you're anything like me, having grown up most of your life like in and around Boston, right, or grown up as a hardcore New Englander, um, you hear a guy like me mention emotions and feelings, and you go, what? Like, hold up, what'd you just say, dude? Like, yeah, I'm a good guy. We're not doing the emotions and feelings talk, are we? We're not, we're not going there, are we? Right, because most hardcore New Englanders don't do the emotions, feely type talk thing with anyone. We're, we're pretty good for the most part. And so on the flip side, though, you hear that, and we also recognize that we walk into January 1, 2017. Happy New Year, by the way. We're dawning on a new year, and we've just put a huge wrap on a very, very eventful, fragile, turbulent year of 2016. And now we've got a new year dawning, and there's tons of feelings and emotions that are swimming around, especially in a room like this right now, based upon what's happened previously and coming into a new year. Feelings and emotions of uncertainty about our future politically, even economically, what lies ahead for our country and maybe for our families in a more specific way. There's uncertainty and feelings and emotions around that. Maybe there's some emotions, right? I know there is for Danielle and I, right? We've got three little ones, Dylan, who's six, Lucas, who's four, and Olivia, who's, who's two. And there's so much emotions, right? around watching my kids grow and seeing them change and transform and go from, especially with Dylan, right? Dylan's become like that six-year-old, like, thinks he's got it all together. And I, he, I just look at myself when I look at him. He thinks he's the man. He thinks he doesn't need mom or papa to, to tell him what to do. He's got this thing figured out. So 
Um, so there's emotions around that. There's emotions around seeing my little girl. My little girl. Let me tell you about my little girl. I won't go there. My princess, my all in all, seeing her grow up and speak and, and, and change before our very So there's a lot of emotions around kids, and maybe you're in that same ballpark if you've got kids. This also can be a time, too, maybe you've experienced loss in some way, shape, or form around this time of year before. And this time of year kind of conjures up emotions and feelings in that type of way. So maybe you bring all these types of different things, right, into the room. And some of you here, right, some of you are wicked cheerful deep down inside, right? January 1, 2017, right, resolutions, like lists, goals, ways I'm going to improve life, like this thing is happening, 2016's in the the rearview mirror, this is going to be a great year. Like for me, oftentimes, right, what I've tried to do over the years is January 1 comes and it's Bible like reading plan time, right? So I'm all gung-ho to to jump on the McShane Bible reading plan or some other uh, Bible reading plan that's out there. But what usually winds up happening with me is that the, the end of February comes, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm wrecked. I'm wrecked in my soul because I haven't even made it out of Genesis 4 yet, right? And I'm supposed to be in, like, Jonah or something already by the end of, Je- uh, the end of February. So, so for me, like, that's already a fail for me in a lot of ways, too. And here's what we tend to do with these emotions. You and I, right, will either tend to take these emotions, like any good New Englander, any good Bostonian, and we will stuff those deep down inside. We'll suppress those because those things aren't coming out. We don't talk about feelings. We don't talk about emotions. And so we'll stuff them. We won't make them known. We won't make them visible. Or on the flip side, we will vent them. We will make them known to anybody and everybody who will listen like we were some 38-year-old woman who just heard that New Kids on the Block is coming to town for a tour again, right? And so you're excited. You're pumped. You are getting tickets. You're telling everybody, every single buddy, that new kids on the block is coming to town, right? And so you make them known in that way, your emotions and your feelings. So there's one side or the other, right? You either stuff them or they're wicked visible for everyone to see. And the Psalms instruct us not to just sit on our emotions. They instruct us not to just bow down to our emotions, but to pray them out. And not necessarily just to pray about them in some vague, general, kind of non-connected, non-intimate way, but they call us to actually take them before God. They call us to take our emotions and feelings and pour them out reflectively and process them in the presence of God, in the light of who he is and in who we are, in the light of the realities that come to us and bear down to us as we're in his presence. And so today, here's what we're going to do from Psalm 130. We're going to consider the feeling and emotion of guilt and shame, which come to us through failure and a sense of unworthiness. So this is something that I struggle with deep down in the depth of my soul. If you were to get to hang out with me or know me a little bit, day in and day out, I am tempted to be driven by achievement. All my life, I have been tempted to be driven by accomplishment, by nailing it, by being above and beyond everyone else in whatever I'm doing, whether it's preaching, whether it's playing hockey, whether it's, whether it's being a great dad, whether it's being a knockout husband, right? I'm always tempted and driven by achievement and accomplishment. But as the longer I walk with Jesus, here's the reality. Like the more I'm aware of my inability to live up to any biblical standard that God lays down for me on my own, which begs of my need to constantly be drinking from the deep well of grace day in and day out. Because I am so prone to wander and allow myself to fall into the pit of guilt and shame. 
And I'd venture to say that maybe some of you feel tempted to swim in the same pool of guilt and shame. Especially living in and around a city so prominent like Boston. So successful like Boston, where in many ways, culturally successful people are driven more than most people by this sense of guilt and shame. Successful people oftentimes by standards are driven by a sense of shame, are driven by a sense of guilt or unworthiness or a feel of a fear of failure. And so maybe you feel that tension in some way. And so as we look at Psalm 130, we can see that's the, the two things pop out to us from Psalm 131 is that uh, guilt and shame can feel like a pit. You can feel like you're trapped in a pit when you're swimming around in guilt and shame, but we can also see that there's a rescue possible for those who find themselves in this pit of guilt and shame. So that's what we're going to work for for a few moments this morning. We're going to consider the pit of guilt and shame, and we're going to consider the rescue from the guilt and shame. You ready to work for a few minutes with me? All right, let's pray. Father, be wicked gracious to us here, um, even in... um, even through someone like me who is all jarred up with emotions this morning and excitement about what is dawning in 2017, I pray that uh, you'd help me to be really clear, that you'd be really good to your people through your spirit, by your grace, to open up eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty and the truths of the gospel once again. I pray that you pour out buckets of grace upon us, Lord, no matter where we're at as we walk into this place. You'd fuel us for mission in 2017. We give you the glory that you deserve. And uh, Lord, continue to do the beautiful thing that you're doing in and through the life of each and every seven-mile road family. Thank you for what you're doing here. My prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. All right, we're considering, number one, the pit of guilt and shame. And it starts with a pretty vivid and desperate image in verses 1, 2, and 3. Check it out in Psalm 130. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? The question is like, what's he saying? What, what, what the heck's going on with the psalmist here? He's talking essentially about what it feels like to be trapped in a pit. And essentially it's this, I'm going down, right? I'm falling in, I'm trapped, I'm, I'm reaching out left to right to try to grasp a hold of something, I'm kicking, I'm screaming, I'm sinking, I'm wasting away, I feel like I'm dying, and yet the more I try to hold on to something or grasp something or desperately try to keep myself from falling even deeper, I actually become worse and I actually sink deeper into this pit that I'm in. Hey, listen, maybe some of you can actually uh, think about times emotionally where you felt like you were sinking or trapping. Maybe it was a financial crisis. Maybe it was a family crisis. Um, I remember for me, 2003, uh, soon to be 23-year-old, I'm standing outside of Blanchard's Liquors on Route 1 in Revere, and it's 1130 at night, and I'm on a payphone. You remember these things? There was a payphone right outside the double doors of Blanchard's Liquors, and the cries from the pit of heroin addiction came to a family member from me. And essentially, I did this on the phone as I was trapped in the pit of heroin addiction. It was, I am done. I am done. I am sunk. I am grasping. I am trying, but I can't do this anymore. I can't fix this. And actually, the more I've tried, the more I've dug my heels in deeper to try and get myself out of it, the deeper and deeper and deeper I've gone into this pit of addiction. I'm nothing but a failure. I am worthless. 
I do not even deserve to be here right now. I don't even want to live like this anymore. So for me, it was trapped in the pit of addiction, heroin addiction, 13 years ago. But what's the deal with our boy in Psalm 130 here? He's sinking essentially into guilt and shame. In light of verse 3, he says this. He says, I'm trapped in this pit because of the weight of the record of my sins as I stand against God's holy law. Because up against the standard of God's holy law, he is done. He recognizes it. He sees by the grace of God that he is done. That none, not one person, the Psalms say repeatedly through the Psalms, and even Paul, our boy, says in Romans chapter 3, that no, not one is good. Not one person can stand in light against God's holy law. And so our boy here in Psalm 130 is feeling the weight. He's feeling the crushing weight of failure and worthlessness, that he's nothing. And the more he looks to it, the more he sees it, the more he is crushed by it. But here's the deal, right? Um, You and I don't live in such a black and white culture like this anymore. We don't live in in, in such a a cultural time where... um, There's black and white standards on things. We basically live in a culture that says, uh, you decide what's right. You decide for you what's right and wrong. You decide whether or not um, you're doing right or you're doing wrong. Don't let anybody put you on a guilt trip, right? Like, don't let your parents, don't let the pastors at the church, don't let your teachers, don't let your boss, don't don't let anybody in culture tell you what's right or wrong. But you establish for you what's right or what's wrong, and you march to that drumbeat. You live out that, that tune of what's right and what's wrong for you. And so more and more people are doing it, and therefore um, most people, more people are tempted um, or don't struggle with this sense of guilt anymore. They don't carry around guilt because of this tune that culture says to us, right? There's a, there's a book I've been, I've been fingering through a little bit this week. It's called Beyond Identity, and the author basically points out if you look through the Bible and you read through it carefully, um, the opposite of the word guilt is innocence. But if you look at the word shame, the opposite of the word shame is actually glory. So basically what he says, he says, in guilt, you're dealing with specifics, like uh, I broke a rule. And so you feel guilty about breaking a specific rule. But with shame, it's something completely different, and it's something a lot deeper. It goes way deep than that. With shame, it's I feel guilty about who I am, not necessarily about what I've done. You feel shame because you realize that you're not the person that you, were, that you expected to live up to be. You're not living out, the, you're not being the person that you were. You feel bad about who you are. You feel terrible. You feel crushed. You feel like a failure. You feel worthless because you're not who you aspired to be. You're not living out the vision of your own life. And you failed it. This is a more broad stroke, but at the same time, it's a thousand more times, a uh, thousand times more crushing to live under the weight of shame and the pit of sensing that you're not who you should be. For example, let's tease it out this way. Let's just say our boy Cruz, right? Our boy Matt, Pastor Matt. Let's just say Cruz, right? For, for 15 years, he's, been, he's just been telling people over and over and over again, yo, I was a college baller at Syracuse. I was a D1 superstar, All-American, four years, kid. Scholarship touted top 10 NBA draft. That was me. I got drafted, right? But here's the deal, right? You hear that and you're intrigued by that. And there's this little thing called Google search, right? And Google search reveals that our boy Cruz, right? Did not ball it at Syracuse, right? 
He wasn't D1 balling at Syracuse. He wasn't All-American. He might have been a top 10 NBA draft when he was playing Sega Genesis in 1995 when you could create your own player and basically make yourself a superstar Hall of Famer, right? I remember I used to do this with like NHL, EA Sports. Like 1994, you create your own player. Like Brian Page playing left wing for the Bruins. Cam Neely was on the right. Ray Bork was on the point, right? And I was just a guy at like 150 points in a season. Like I was amazing. I was amazing in that game, right? So for Cruz, right, boom, all of a sudden he feels that. He's exposed, right? He's feeling guilt because he's told a lie. He's been telling a lie all along. So he feels guilty over breaking a rule, breaking a law, breaking the commandment of lying. But at the same time for him, the shame goes a lot deeper. He's covered in shame because basically for him, he could say, I thought that I was stronger than that. I thought I had more integrity than that. I thought I was a lot more courageous than that. I lied because I was scared. I was scared of what people might think of me if they thought that I wasn't a Syracuse baller and I wasn't drafted in the top 10. Scared, covered with shame. These things, guilt and shame, are actually, they're from the same family, but they're unique and different in a lot of ways because our culture, our culture has increasingly over the years put a, become a place of safety to say, who's to say you're guilty? Right? Who's going to tell you you're guilty? Yeah, that standard or so-and-so or the Bible or those preachers or that church might say that it's wrong, but that doesn't mean it's wrong, which comes down to this cultural anchor that you and I are bombarded with. It's this, is that anything is justifiable. Anything. Who's to say you're wrong? Who's to say you're right? Anything is justifiable depending on where you live or what you come from or what you believe. Much cultural reasoning apart from the standards of scripture can be justified away because it's all about what you believe. But here's where it gets real. Because you and I, we, we can, as we live in this culture, we can be tempted to justify away guilt so that we don't carry that around with us. But there's, a, there's the deep sense of shame that you and I just can't seem to, to get rid of. That, that doesn't necessarily easily go away. It's impossible to get rid of the feeling that something's wrong with me. That I'm not, that something's missing. That I'm, I'm still not living up to or aspiring to the person that I should be. We can't escape that. No human being can escape that. It's because, as one author puts it, we are all born with a deep neurotic fear of insignificance that we will have no effect on the world and therefore we're driven to be some sort of hero. We're all driven with this desire to be some sort of hero. And when the fuel of significance runs out deep in the depth of the soul of a person, the heavy blanket of shame covers us and drives us deeper and deeper into the pit of despair. This goes all the way back to a garden, this story. Chases us all the way back to a garden when Eve bought into the lie of the serpent and refuted God's good and loving and holy standard to not eat from the tree of good and evil. And instead, choosing to believe the lie and accomplish for herself autonomy and significance, self-significance, we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We run and we hide and we try to cover up all of our attempts to cover up our shame through whatever little self-salvation project we put our little minds to, right? Or whatever our little idle heart, our heart factories, the idle hearts of our, the idols of our heart produce for us, as, as Calvin says, right? 
right? We start to run and hide into all these self-salvation projects to cover up the shame, to cover up the feeling of unworthiness and failure in our life, right? So, so for you, we need to be great parents. Like, I need to be a better worker. I need to be a better earner. I need to be a better neighbor. I need to be a better cook. I need to give more money than the person to the left or the right of me. I need to be involved with more, whatever it is, right? So instead of facing flaws and sins head on and all of our deficiencies head on, we self-medicate with cover-up strategies that make it look okay, even though we're not. So we attempt to clean the outside of the cup while the inside remains just contaminated and polluted and unclean and not dealt with. We imitate Adam and Eve. Instead of humbly owning our flaws and our deficiencies and killing the quest for independence and obsession, we become defensive Maybe we blame shift, right? Right, well, I, it wasn't my fault because this is the way I was raised and this is what happened to me and, and, or my neighbor said this about me and it made me want to go off and do this and so on, so on, so Justifying away any ownership or responsibility. We like to hide the worst in ourselves at every cost, but there's a cost that even comes with that as we attempt to, to cover ourselves or hide ourselves is that we lose intimacy with God We lose intimacy with each other in our relationships, and we actually stray farther away from who we really are at the same time. We don't understand ourselves oftentimes when we're attempting to cover ourselves with whatever thing we're trying to cover up. And here's the kicker, too, for for most of us, right, who who do the church thing. There's a religious form to this, too, that, that, that takes place. Luke 18, right, there's this religious Pharisee, and he's praying, and he's pumped up, right? He's praying because he has a resume of good deeds and he's praying to himself. He's praying about himself and, he, and, and in essence, he's praying to himself too, basically comforting himself, saying words such as like, I, thank God that I'm not like this guy over here, right? I, 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 I'm not like any other men. I, I don't rob people. I don't, I don't do a ton of evil, right? I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. I attend church. I give a tenth of my income all the time. Like I'm a wicked good person, Right? In this prayer, too, in Luke 18, he only mentions God once, and he, he, he mentions himself a bunch of times, hardly even recognizing God at all. No savoring the grace of God, just, just another narcissistic moment of self-congratulation for how good he's been, how much his resume looks wonderful before God. It's all one big cover-up strategy. So while we uh, might be able to um, do away with guilt, the feeling of justify away Here's what I've done wrong. We can't shake the shame, that feeling deep down inside, that for whatever reason, like, I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel right. I, I'm a failure. I'm not living up to what I should be, right? And that can drive us to be successful, too, as I mentioned earlier, right? And so the question is this. Psalm 130 speaks to us, to those of us who find ourselves in the pit of guilt and shame. The question is, like, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? How do we find ourselves a way out of this pit. And that's our second point for a moment here, the rescue from guilt and shame. And Psalm 130 says that there's a rescue available to us. The psalmist through the Spirit says ahead, he says in Psalm 130, he says, and he, God, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God himself was going to be the one to redeem the people of God himself would redeem them. And we live in light of that beautiful truth now that Jesus Christ himself has come. We live in light of that now. We don't live still looking for the hope of that truth to be born or happen, but
but it's actually dawned, it's happened. We've celebrated that recently with the birth of Jesus, God coming to us in the flesh, climbing down to us in our pit, in our brokenness, in our flaws, in our deficiencies, and coming to us and moving into our neighborhood and becoming like us, taking on the form of human flesh. We now live in the beauty of that truth. But notice what has to happen too if we're going to be rescued from this pit of guilt and shame. And it's there in verses 1 through 3 again. The grace of seeing yourself trapped in the pit in a need of rescue. Needing the grace of God to open your eyes to see your need for rescue in the first place, right? Look at verses 1 through 3 again. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared, right? It comes down to this, right? There there is no rescue available to any of us wallowing away in the pit of guilt and shame or whatever other deficiency or flaw that you feel weighted down by or trapped in the pit by. There is no rescue from that pit without the intervening grace of God coming to you and lifting the blinders from the eyes of your heart so that you would see your condition. You would see your utter need for someone else to rescue you from where you're at. Right? It was the same deal with this young guy in Luke 15, right? Often called the prodigal son. Right? He takes dad's inheritance, basically tells him, I want out of the family. I'll take my share of the inheritance, and I'm going to go on this perpetual New Year's Eve party, right? Like, tons of, like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas type of deal with him, right? And so he's potting and he's living up, having a good time, right? And comes to himself, essentially, right? He's eating what the pigs are eating. He's mucking it around in, in, in the mud, in the crap with the pigs, right? And he comes to himself. That's the, the grace of God to him in the moment that he was in his worst, at his bottom, wallowing around in the mud. It says that he came to himself. And that's the first most loving act of grace from God to us in our pit of sin and shame is to reveal the depth of our condition, first and foremost. Because here's what it is. Like without it, you and I will never, ever, ever, ever be able to drink from the well of grace. We'll never, ever be able to appreciate grace or savor grace. And we'll never be able to be transformed by it. Unless the grace of God comes to us in our condition and lifts the blinders from our eyes to see the depth of our condition and our absolute need for a new redeemer outside of ourselves, outside of our best efforts, outside of our new resolutions to improve things in 2017, right? You know what that grace does, though? That grace exposes us, and it hurts. And that grace will expose us, and that grace will, will, will leave us feeling that we are completely lacking. But this is the exact moment that Jesus moves in. He moves in as an ambassador of peace. And he comes to us as our hope, our only hope, our redeeming hope. It's his peace, the declaration that through him, all hostility between heaven and earth, God and humanity, has been demolished. It's his peace that enables us to face the guilt and the shame that that grace shows us. We're able to face that guilt and that shame and not be crushed by it any longer. Because in Jesus, all the negative verdicts against us have been done away with. 
all the negative verdicts that have been launched at us by our own self condemning us and by Satan himself looking to condemn us and keep us down in the trap and the pit of guilt and shame, all of that stuff has been reversed. All of it's been reversed in Jesus now, right? And, and it made me think about our boy Martin Luther, right? Great Reformation, Fiestata, Martin Luther. And here's how our boy dealt with it when, when, when the enemy of the soul came to tempt him with swimming back down into the pit of guilt and shame. Luther says this, he says, why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He's no Lord, he's no prince anymore. You have a different, stronger Lord, Jesus Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince and God of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, threaten and act in an unmannerly way. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may balk. He may run here and there and tear at the chain, but because he is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. So the devil acts towards every Christian. Therefore, everything depends on this, that we do not feel secure, but continue in the fear of God and in prayer. Then the chained dog cannot harm us. So we need the the grace of God to show us our condition. We also need the grace of forgiveness that can crush all guilt and shame once and for all. The grace of forgiveness. And here's the beauty in this. The grace of forgiveness in Jesus, our Redeemer, says that you are fully known and at the same time you are fully loved in spite of who you are. The grace of forgiveness to us is that we are exposed and even as we're exposed and everything is brought into the light, we are not rejected. We're not cast aside in spite of who we are. There's no need to run for cover because we are seen and at yet the same time we are embraced, grace tells us. The gospel tells us that now we are okay, not because we're nailing it, not because we're climbing the ladder and getting to that point of meeting God and hitting the standard. The gospel tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life, that you and I are completely unable to live, no matter how many resolutions we throw down each and every year to do better, to improve upon our lives, to rid ourselves of guilt and shame. Jesus nailed it for us. And then in doing that, he transferred to us the merits of that perfect life to our account. Because now in Christ, you're a perfect person, not because of what you do. Positionally, you are a perfect person because Jesus lived perfect in your place and in my place. That's such beautiful news to someone like me. And what's more, Jesus absorbs the horrific, alienating punishment that was due to you and I because of our sin. Death on the cross, the removal of God's face and God's presence in his life. And now because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for you and for I, right? God looks down with us and he sees us and he has nothing but pleasure and not disappointment. In spite of us and knowing that we will continue to fail and be in need of mercy every single morning, God still continues to look down upon his children with pleasure and not disappointment. Because Jesus took the fall in my place and in your place. Listen, yo, he showed mercy to a people who were once a people who were called no mercy, right? You and I were a people that were, were no people and not his people. And now by the grace of forgiveness in Jesus and the grace of the gospel, we are now 
his people. He says, you are now my people. Because of Jesus, everything that's true about Jesus is true about us in God's eyes. He leaped over the bar. Listen, he leaped over the bar of God's law in our place and at the same time was crushed under the weight of God's law in our place so that the burden of both would be lifted from our shoulders now. The burden of both are now gone from our shoulders because of Jesus. And now for those of us who trust in Jesus, you are embraced. You are loved. You are beautiful. You are guilt-free all of the time on your best day and even on your worst day. You are loved, you are embraced, you are a son, you are a daughter, you are looked at with pleasure, you are his prized possession, you are his treasure. This is good news, man. This is good news for anybody, if you're like me, who tends to drift into and wander into the feelings of unworthiness and failure, bringing you into the pool of guilt and shame. This is beautiful news that I need to drink from day in and day out. And there is no better way to start the new year than by reminding ourselves of this beautiful grace to us and this news to us. Because it's not about what we do for him. Listen, it's all about what he has done for us and continues to do for us. And what better reason than to start this year off by actually getting honest about our lives. That actually saying and being honest today before the Lord, even before we come to the table by saying, yes, My life is incomplete. Yes, my life has been a failure in some way. Yes, my life has these things. I am an incomplete work in progress, but I'm being, I'm I'm in process, right? Like I'm on the way to being made complete because Jesus is doing a work in me. And I don't have to fear being rejected or dismissed or kicked out of the family or having to live with guilt and shame because Jesus took my place. Jesus loves me. God looks down upon me with pleasure as I start this year. So here's my encouragement to you, and I'm done and I'll go back to Maine. I won't come back for a while probably. Take heart, man. Seven Mile Road, Melrose, family of church, right? Take heart because in Jesus you are loved. And in Jesus there will always be a seat for you and I at the king's table, man. And that's amazing. No guilt or shame in Jesus. It's my whole hope for us as as a family of churches, honestly, Houston, Philly, Waltham, Canabunk, Maine, Melrose, Malden, that, that we together, from Dan to AJ to Clint to Matt to Dan to Jeremy to myself and our teams and our families that we've called, been called to do life with, and as we live on mission to try and make more disciples of Jesus, that we would continue to be transformed by this as we drink from this, this gospel well day in and day out. It's the whole, and listen, I'll say this and I'm done, seriously. It's the whole reason that Seven Mile Road Kennebunk is in existence. It's the whole reason why Mark's family, why Jonathan's family, why my family, and why 12 other people are trying to plant the church is because we want to see people in the Kennebunks drink from this same well of gospel grace and be transformed by it. And So may the God of grace by his spirit help you and I to see and grasp this and help us to believe that he who began a good work in us is going to continue it even through the year of 2017. Amen? We pray. Father, you're good. You're wicked good. And I pray that there's just something that in the rambling and rant that just went on for the last 35 minutes with me, God, that you have been clear about something. That we do not have to carry around the weight of guilt and shame. 
whatever that thing that tries to latch onto us from our past or even from our presence. God, we are free to step into the light today and expose it. We are free to be honest and at the same time not fear rejection from you, our Father, because you love us based upon what Jesus, our elder brother, our true elder brother has done for us. I thank you that we are loved, that we are embraced, that we are yours and you are ours, and that nothing in this world can ever take that away from us. God, help us to hang our hats as churches on mission for you in this year and the years to come. Help us to hang our hats and anchor our souls in these deep, beautiful gospel truths. My prayer, I pray you'd hear it as we come to this table and we would rejoice. We would, you would put a new song in our mouths as we come to this table now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Blessings to you guys.